Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get accountability and better discussions. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. We also have groups that meet in person and online, so if you're interested in those, shoot me an email or a message on Facebook. For the radio show, we're in the book of Genesis, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. This week, we have our third episode on the life of Joseph. In the first week, we had Genesis 37, which is when Joseph is ultimately sold into slavery by his brothers. Then last week, we had the two stories. Uh, Chapter 38 is the interlude the encounter between Judah and Tamar that is underrated and really, really important. And then the second half of last week's show is chapter 39, the much more famous uh, chapter about Potiphar, uh, Potiphar's wife and Joseph in Egypt. At the end of that, he ends up back in prison, and that's where we'll pick up the action today in chapter 40, along with its resolution in chapter 41. Lord, be with us today as we open up your scriptures, help us to learn about you about Joseph and applications for us, that we would have better theology, better ideas about who you are and what you want from us, and applications to our lives, that we may live lives of greater holiness, love, joy, and peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and the show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in chapters 40 and 41 of Genesis today. Where we left off was in 39, where Joseph had been imprisoned after the incident with Potiphar's wife. And so we pick up the text in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. The first thing that strikes me in this passage is how much repetition there is. You've got three references to the cupbearer and the baker. You've got four references to the pharaoh, who's also called the king. And you've got four references to either custody or prison. And they're being attended by Joseph, who was in charge. We knew that from the end of chapter 39. And it's connected to the captain of the guard, verses 3 and 4. He was named also at the beginning of chapter 39. So it's probably Potiphar, but it's interesting that he's not named here. So either it's a different person or God, through the Bible, is not wanting to give him credit and distract from what's about to take place. So why the repetition? I think one answer to this is one of the bigger picture items in Genesis, and especially in this last quarter of Genesis, looking at the society of Egypt in contrast to the emerging nation of Israel. What's justice going to look like? In the last chapter, chapter 39, we had injustice and immorality as key components of what life looks like in Egypt, at least in that one anecdote. Another angle is that chapter 39 had 
ended with a supposed offense. Chapter 40 here begins with an unspecified offense. And so justice is clearly in the fore as we dig into this passage. Now, these are important positions. The cupbearer also rendered the butler in the King James and the baker. The cupbearer would taste the drinks that the uh, pharaoh or king would have, of course, and the baker would prepare and taste the food. So both of these are important roles. They're very close to Pharaoh. In fact, they're called officials in verse 2. As we discussed last week with Potiphar, they're both probably eunuchs rather than just mere servants. At that level, the need for trust was so high that a eunuch was a much safer uh, bet for a pharaoh than a, uh, a man who had not been eunuched yet. If that's the case, Cass makes an interesting observation. This mighty man, a god to the world's highest civilization, is at the mercy of these two eunuchs precisely because not being a god, he is at the mercy of his bodily needs. Now, what happened here? We don't know. Verse 2 says he's angry, but verse 1 says he's offended, which implies that they were suspected of a serious crime. Now, if we think about the arbitrary and capricious rulers and the might-makes-right approach to things, it could be just a bad meal or too much frosting on his cake, but more likely, there's some sort of conspiracy here. And we know from the passage that they've been held in custody for some time. Now, that could be because they're not sure who's guilty. One is released later in this chapter. The prison could be a holding tank while investigating and deliberating. Or maybe the reference to for some time indicates that it's been too long that they've been forgotten. That's how Joseph will be treated at the end of the story. And again, we're back to the idea of justice and injustice. Cupbearer and baker are also interesting in that they allude to wine and bread. As Cass notes, the former to gladden his heart, the latter to sustain his life. And these two words, it's the only times that they appear in the Bible. As many other words in the story, they are unique and they are found only in the strange nation of Egypt. It also points to the importance of food in Egypt. These officials, Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph's first dream and his later job will all be connected to food. As Cass notes, Egypt seems somewhat obsessed with food. And then finally, verse 5 introduces us to the dreams. They have them on the same night, and the reader is told early on about the separate meanings. Of course, this is a frequent way for God to communicate and reveal himself, particularly in the Old Testament, as we saw in chapter 37. And the phrase, after some time, in verse 4, has a different meaning in this context. It seems to point to God's providence and his timing in revealing things to the cupbearer and the baker, and thus getting Joseph on to the next phase of his life. All right, verses 6 through 8. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the passage starts with Joseph seeing that they were dejected. And apparently this was a new level of dejection over and above merely being in prison. And it's connected to the dream, we find out soon. Is curiosity killing them? Maybe they have something awesome, but they don't know what to do with it. Maybe they're expecting good or bad news, and they're being stymied because they don't understand what the dream is. First thing to note here is Joseph is not self-absorbed with his own problems. He exercises discernment and empathy. He's ministering while suffering and waiting. And it's probably based on some level of relationship with them. 
Now, is this because Joseph's faith is that amazing, or has the prison become not such a rough place for him? Remember where he's come from. Maybe he's gotten himself into a fairly comfortable position, but he can also relate to them. He's been in there longer, and he puts those gifts to use. In 6 and 7, notice that he doesn't just notice, but he takes action. How often do we see something, but we just let it go? We're afraid of what to do next. We have apathy. We're too busy. Joseph had delivered physical blessings in chapter 39, and here it's spiritual blessing. Verse 8 is interesting. The two dreams were probably a hopeful sign for Joseph given his two dreams. And beyond that, he's probably curious about all of this. This is not a normal day in the prison. Their words, that there's no one to interpret, of course, are too strong. Connected to that, it's interesting that they thought so much of their dreams, but of course that connects to why they're so frustrated that they don't have an answer to what the interpretation is. They probably assumed that wise men were necessary and not available. Wise men will show up again in chapter 41 and fail to provide an interpretation for Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph then points them to God's sovereignty, although appropriately, given his audience, he uses God's name Elohim, the generic name for God, rather than Yahweh and thus points to God's and Joseph's ability to deliver. All of this gives Joseph confidence for his mission in this moment and beyond. It allowed him to show them where to look in terms of faith in God. Psalm 42:11 says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Joseph is going to point them towards the God of Israel and the God of the universe. And finally, it's interesting that only Joseph and Daniel interpret dreams in the Bible, and both of them are within foreign lands in competition against wise men. And I think a broader consideration here is to wonder if it speaks to how God moves differently in different cultures and different contexts. The fact that we only see this happen here indicates that God uses different strategies in different contexts, which is not surprising at all. Verses 9 through 13, so the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. So here we have the first dream and its interpretation. Remember that chapter 37, Joseph had a dream, and the understanding, the interpretation of it was probably pretty obvious, but it was not given at least explicitly at that point, but it's explicitly given here, both dream and interpretation. The first thing to note here is the cupbearer steps up first. Is that random? Is he more courageous? Maybe his faith is rewarded here. Is he higher rank? Is he expecting good news and or has a clean conscience? The punchline for him is that he will be restored to his old position within three days. He'll experience a resurrection of sorts. Verse 13, lift up your head is translated as release, and that's what would happen to him. One question to ask is how much of Joseph's success here is a special gift from God versus more general wisdom from a godly worldview, or just being plain shrewd and clever, which of course is a different sort of blessing from God. And how does he interpret the dream? How does he get it done? One thing that's interesting here, and we just take this for granted, but he has injected time into the dream, and that is what unlocks the interpretation of it. It's too long of an explanation to go into here, but 
it could be coming from worldview, how Egypt and Israel deal with time. Leon Cass wrestles with this uh, interpretation quite a bit, and it's interesting but too long to go into. I think a more mundane but clever explanation is that it turns out it's three days until Pharaoh's birthday, which we'll see in chapter 40, verse 20, when he would likely bestow favors and curses. And so maybe that Joseph is just being clever here, knows when Pharaoh's birthday is, and connects the three of the dream to the three for Pharaoh's birthday. Verses 14 and 15, Joseph continues, But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. I like the first word here, when. It tells us about Joseph's confidence. He is confident in God that this is the way it's going to go. From there, Joseph makes a very reasonable request. He points to the injustice in verse 15, eliciting sympathy. But implicitly, he's also hoping that he'll connect it to the usefulness of his gifting, which again is clever, that Pharaoh would find him useful and that the cupbearer would indirectly as well. I think one of the things that is interesting here is how much of this is too pushy? Is it pushing along God's plan? Joseph knew God didn't want him there, but when and how to get out. And I think we face this all the time. God puts something in front of us. Is this an open door? Or is this taking matters into our own hands? When it comes to God's provision and our participation, sometimes we do too much, sometimes too little. We should do what we can and pray for what we can't do. We should take opportunities and not demand results. But the balance here is interesting, and we can't you know, crush Joseph for this, but it is worth asking the question, does Joseph take too much of this into his own hands? Notice also how he describes the injustice. He talks about the dungeon, which is translated in chapter 37 as cistern or pit, back when Joseph was taken prisoner before he sold into slavery by his brothers. And the complaint and the case he makes is really just the basics and no names. I think that's interesting. He's focused on justice and his innocence. He doesn't go into lengthy complaining. He's got a captive audience. He could talk their ear off. He doesn't name names. There's not a lot of moaning. It's just matter of fact, justice, innocence, please, I've done you a favor, do me a favor. Matthew Henry says, when we are called to vindicate ourselves, we should carefully avoid as much as may be speaking ill of others. Let us be content to prove ourselves innocent and not be fond of upbraiding others with their guilt. And Joseph does that here. All right, what about dream number two? We'll take care of that after the break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 40 and 41 today. And in the first segment, we covered the first half of chapter 40. The cupbearer and the baker are in prison. They both have dreams, and Joseph has interpreted the cupbearer's dream. Now we get to the baker's dream, verses 16 through 19. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Verse 16 is interesting, gets off to kind of a funny start, at least to me, that when the chief baker saw the favorable interpretation of the first one, then he steps up. Maybe he was initially expecting bad news. Maybe he had been comforted that his dream had many similarities to the cupbearers. But at this point, he seems to gain courage. 
not just resignation, but courage to step up and ask Joseph what he thinks of his dream. It reminds me of Robin Hood and Monty Python and the Holy Grail at the Bridge of Death. And if you know that scene, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, about brave Sir Robin. If not, you can Google that. It's pretty funny. But similar that the baker steps up when the guy in front of him gets good news. But instead, it's bad news. Verse 19, your head will be lifted off. So there's a great pun in here, by the way. Verse 13, the cupbearer's head would be lifted up. Here, the baker's head will be lifted off. And then to add insult to injury, there'd be hanging after being impaled. Further dishonor, making him an example. Now, there's no follow-up from Joseph as there was in verses 14 and 15, and there's nothing recorded from the baker here as well. There's a terse narrative throughout Genesis, including here, but it's not surprising that neither Joseph nor the baker say anything, at least of great importance, after this sobering interpretation. Here, I think we see Joseph's ability and willingness, not eagerness, but willingness to deliver bad news. In this, he's like the watchman of Ezekiel 3 and 33. We're given messages that should be delivered And it's incumbent on us to do that, to deliver those messages faithfully. Joseph's been given something by God, and it's difficult, but he still pulls the trigger on saying the difficult words to the baker. Matthew Henry says it was not Joseph's fault that he brought him no better tidings. Ministers are but interpreters. They cannot make the thing otherwise than it is. If therefore they deal faithfully and their message proves unpleasing, it is not their fault. This is true for us in everyday life, certainly true of preaching as well. Is our preaching convicting enough? Do we preach God as he is versus God as we or others want him to be? There's a call to be flexible in style. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22 that he's all things to all people so that by all possible means he might save some, but you still have to get to the essence of the gospel, which ranges from sin, deserve death, mercy, and grace. Verses 20 through 22, now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. So verse 20, we see that pun that I was referring to a minute ago that both heads are lifted up, so to speak. Pharaoh here makes a birthday wish. He blows out his candles, and in that time it was customary to release a prisoner, and the cupbearer is the one who gets released. Now, we're not told again why. Is it because he's been found innocent? Is it providence? Is it random? Not told that. Again, we're back to wondering if this is Joseph's cleverness and reasoning abilities as part of the interpretation, connecting it to some aspect that God has given him, or is it purely from God and and the events just line up in providence? The other thing here with Pharaoh's birthday is, you know, why would you want to do this kind of thing on your birthday? Well, it underlines the power to release and kill people. Pharaoh held in his hands the power of life and death. Bottom line, Joseph's prophecy is fulfilled, and this would be a great encouragement to Joseph, both in this moment and long run, concerning his dreams coming true, although there is a much longer time frame here, and especially in light of what we'll see in the next verse, which is a significant time lag. So this encouragement to him is not just in the moment, it's something that he can bank on. I think for us, it's the same. God moves in powerful ways. It's an encouragement to us in that moment, but do we remember it or write it down in a way that it's always an encouragement to us? Even though he's not freed at this point, it sets up the events of chapter 41 and the much more difficult context there. 
I think for us, there are times and events when we can root our trust in God's sovereignty. And it's not just an intellectual thing, but experientially. We know God's in control, but there are times in our lives when God has moved in such a way that we know he's in control. And it's important to bank on those, to put them in the bank and to draw on that in difficult times. Finally, verse 23, the cheap cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So here we have a different third type of injustice and suffering. His brothers had done unspeakable things to him in chapter 37. Then you have Potiphar's wife in chapter 39. Now he's ignored and forgotten until chapter 41, verse 9, and it's it's a few years out. So here we have a sin of omission, and it's in marked contrast to Joseph's courage and initiative back in chapter 40, verse 7, that starts this story off. We're not sure that he gave his word to Joseph that he would do this. There's nothing recorded, but he certainly should have done this for Joseph. It's a very reasonable request. Now, what happened? Is it inconvenient? Did he procrastinate? Did he not want to bring up a sensitive topic so soon? Is he selfish, doesn't care about Joseph's request? Is he just excited about his future and forgets? Maybe he sees himself as on shaky ground, just getting out of prison. Maybe it's not something he should bring up. Or he might say, well, who am I? I'm just a cupbearer. It's not something I should bring to Pharaoh. In any case, it's a terrible sin and results in a terrible injustice. And maybe in some ways, this would hurt worse than the other ones. I mean, imagine Joseph being excited about getting out. I mean, surely he'll be getting out soon. But then the hope fading, slowly dying over time, very open-ended, right? The, the damage of chapter 37 and 39 has the advantage of being over and done. But this just drags on and on. Sometimes those are worse. Elie Wiesel said the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. And that's happened here. Oscar Wilde, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. And that's what's happened here. And as a result, chapter 41, verse 1 tells us two full years will pass until the next providential episode. Joseph was safe in God's hands. Maybe Joseph needed two more years in prison. Or did prison need him for two more years? Or is it just lining up the timing of events externally, where God's got to arrange the events of history where it makes sense for Joseph to be released? We don't know the answers to those questions, but none of that excuses the cupbearer. His forgetfulness resulted in two more years of prison and bondage for Joseph. And we need to be careful that our forgetfulness and our sins of omission don't cause damage to other people. It's also an effective literary device. Don't skip ahead too quickly. We want to know how Joseph's going to end up. Well, we got another pause in the story here. Jonathan Sachs says, The break is calculated to maximize suspense. Our suspense, it turns out, mirrors Joseph's. We've waited a week in the weekly Jewish reading. He had to wait two years. It forces us to relive something of Joseph's sense of disappointment, of time passing, of the slow fading of hope. It's also fascinating that beyond all of this, Joseph won't get out the way he had hoped or planned, just as he had escaped from chapter 37's pit. He had certain ways he wanted that to take place, but it didn't. It it unfolded in a much more marvelous manner. And the same thing's going to happen here. He has his plans. He has his strategies. He has his schemes. But God's got a different plan in mind. Jonathan Sachs notes that in both episodes, between intention and outcome, there was an intervention. And it was the appearance of the Midianites in chapter 37, and it's going to be Pharaoh's dream in the next chapter that ultimately God uses to bring his plans to completion. 
The other thing we see as we read Joseph's life as a whole is that he seems to generally trust God's sovereignty. And the flip side of that is he's not surprised by the world letting him down or being ungrateful. I'm sure there were dark nights of the soul. There was wrestling with God letting him down one day or another. But Joseph generally seems parked in a secure faith in God's sovereignty. You know, for us, I think a lot of times we think or even dwell upon, hey, what's next? What's going to happen to me next? And Joseph doesn't seem to be there, at least very often. One problem is that we're unable to discern blessing from curse. You know, think about this from Joseph's perspective. Something happens, it looks like a blessing, but it ends up being a curse. It's a curse. Oh, it's really a blessing. It's so difficult for us to interpret what circumstances mean for us. All we do know is that God is much more concerned about character and our response to circumstances than the circumstances themselves. Matthew Henry observes, we must not think it strange if in this world we have hatred shown us for love and slights for our respects. And Joseph has just been slammed here. After doing such a marvelous job, he is harmed by the sin of omission of the cupbearer. Joseph saw the cupbearer's deliverance clearly, but only had a dim view, a promise of his own. And so it's continued faith, hope, and doing what he could with the opportunities presented to him. He knew and he had faith in God's general plan. Did he force God's timing? Maybe he trusted the cupbearer too much. And if so, he learns to trust more in God after this. The cupbearer forgot, but God did not. Lamentations 3.26, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Romans 5, 3 through 5, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we do know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And James 1, 2, and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And all of these are difficult truths, but it is what Joseph experiences and what we can experience as well. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcast of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Questions and comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 40 and 41 this week, and in the first two segments, we covered chapter 40. Joseph has found himself in prison after the episode in chapter 39 in Potiphar's household. He interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, those interpretations come true. The cupbearer is released, but verse 23 ends with the cheap cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And so we have a lull in the action as Joseph continues to sit and maybe stew a bit in prison, waiting for God's providence, hopefully patiently. And that time finally comes in chapter 41. We'll read verses 1 through 8 to start. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream He was standing by the Nile, when out of the river there came seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed the seven healthy full heads. 
Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. So a number of small things to note here. Verse 1 says it's two full years. So in the timeline, we can put that along with the beginning of chapter 40, where we're told it's some time later. But it's also two years since Daniel has continued his time in prison. Two dreams for Pharaoh. So we've seen that theme before. We saw it in chapter 40 with the cupbearer and the baker, and we saw it for Joseph way back in chapter 37. Again, the repetition provides a point of emphasis. Joseph will make this point explicitly in chapter 41, verse 32. The dreams are about cows and grain, and in a nutshell, seven good swallowed by seven bad. So we have agricultural context in both of these, which implies a famine prophecy. You'll note the cows in Egypt versus what would have been a sheep dream in Palestine. Verse 2, the reference to out of the river is connecting to the cows that would stay in the Nile to avoid heat and insects. Verse 6 refers to an east wind, which is called a Sirocco or a Kamsine, which came in late spring and early fall and often withered vegetation. There's a reference to this in Ezekiel 17.10. And then finally, the troubled Pharaoh leads to the wise men showing up to interpret, but they fail. As powerful as Pharaoh is, he's been reached by a dream, he's been troubled by a dream, and there's no apparent relief in sight. Now, the text tells us no one could interpret it. One wonders if they were maybe okay with offering some interpretations, but they were maybe worried about handling the pair of them. Maybe they felt good about one, but not both. Or maybe they felt like they had a decent interpretation, but it would not be acceptable or pleasing to Pharaoh, and so they did not share it out of fear. We're not totally sure. It could just mean they didn't understand it at all. Back to the point I made in chapter 40 from Leon Cass, it seems obvious to us, but Joseph, again, in this chapter, will insert time into the dream, and suddenly it makes sense. But if you don't have that innovation, that the numbers represent time, then the dream doesn't make any sense to anybody. In a nutshell, God is using odd means and the cultural weight put on dreams to get Pharaoh's attention, and it does a great job. On to verses 9 through 14. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings, Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. So the cupbearer's memory returns and the wheels are set in motion for Joseph to again ascend out of a very different sort of pit. All this is within God's sovereignty and his plans. And we were hard on the cupbearer earlier for not remembering earlier. If he had remembered earlier, we just know that God would have done something, intervened in a different way to let his plans come forward. So again, this doesn't let the cupbearer off the hook, but to his credit, He does step forward here. He also admits to shortcomings in verse 9. So he's admitting his faults. It reminds us of Judah back in chapter 38, the Bible's first penitent and his encounter and episode with Tamar. And of course, it's better late than never. I mean, making mistakes is one thing. Not owning them or covering them up 
is another, and we've seen that throughout Genesis. Also, we should give him credit for the courage it takes to speak here, to admit a mistake to Pharaoh. And he's also implying quite a bit of confidence in Joseph, especially in bringing up two details, right? He brings up his age. He's a young man. And for Pharaoh, it's probably difficult for him to imagine a young man having the wisdom that it would take. And he also brings up Joseph's ethnicity, that he's a despised Hebrew. We see that repeatedly in the text where the Egyptians despised the Israelites, found them detestable. Verses 10 through 13 is a recounting of the story. Verse 13 also has the word exactly. And so that underlines just how impressive Joseph's prophecy and interpretation was. It's interesting that he recounts the details so well, but he does not remember Joseph's name. So verse 14, Pharaoh swings into action. Key word here is quickly in verse 14. It alludes to the level of Pharaoh's trouble. And it also indicates that God is moving behind the scenes and there is little time to prepare. Joseph is sitting in the prison and all of a sudden he's moments away from talking with Pharaoh. It reminds me of 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. Like Daniel uh, in, in many of his stories, Joseph just has the moment popped on him and somehow he knows what to say. And I think for us, we kind of hope we'll have the right thing to say, but a lot of times there's a lifetime of preparation or maybe there's moments of preparation where we're preparing for uh, an eventuality. We're preparing for events that may take place. And many times if we wait and don't do that prep, then we're un unable to execute that as well as we would like to. And Joseph, as we'll see, is going to nail this. Now, verse 14 also has Joseph brought in and cleaned up. It's not totally clear from the text whether this is required by Pharaoh or his court or whether it's something chosen wisely by Joseph to fit in appropriately. A clean shave would have been a cultural thing. The Egyptians typically shave, Palestinians didn't. And there's no objection here from Joseph. One of the great stories in Daniel 1 is that Daniel and his friends accept some aspects of Babylonian culture and refuse certain others. And so one of the lessons that comes out of that is that you don't just say no to everything. You say no to some things as appropriate, and you always give reasons, and hopefully you give an out. And so here Joseph is not bothered by you know, a haircut and a shave. That's no big deal. And so he just takes care of that. Why should he let a haircut get in the way of this opportunity? But in another way, he is hiding his identity. Is it wise or is he trying to hide something? Is he trying to avoid a stumbling block or is he trying to fit in? What are his motives? And motives are everything. Think of Paul with circumcision of Timothy and Titus, Acts 16.3 versus Galatians 2.3. Paul's adamant that Titus would not be circumcised in the context of Galatians, but he does have Timothy circumcised in the context of Acts. That's not Paul being wishy-washy. It's Paul recognizing the context and doing what's appropriate in the moment. We hope that's what's driving Joseph, but we're not totally sure. And finally, just to double down on this point, he moved from the pit to slavery. Now he's moving from the pit to Pharaoh. And each time there's been a clothing change. We've seen this four times now in Joseph's account. All right, verses 15 and 16, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So verse 15, Pharaoh makes the request, and then 16 is really dramatic, and I wonder how dramatic it was delivered. One can picture it in a movie, 
uh, as a dramatic scene with music, you know, Joseph says here, I cannot do it, but God will. And if there's a long pause in there, it's pretty dramatic. Interesting that Joseph here is confident, but it's not pride that we worried about back in chapter 37. He's giving God the credit to do otherwise would be to steal from God. This is God's provision, but it's also Joseph's participation. We have that wonderful formula in play here as well. No effort to negotiate or get leverage by Joseph. He's just delivering the message that God's going to give him. And all of this is in contrast to the wise men's failures. Again, the sort of thing we see in, throughout the book of Daniel. And note, this is even before he hears the dreams. That's the confidence he has in what God's going to speak through him. There's also a bit of trash talk here. God is going to use a slave to confound Egypt's wisdom and its wise men. Again, a theme that runs throughout Daniel. So the parallels between Joseph and Daniel continue here. The men of the highest integrity who served under pagan monarchs and are the only ones in Scripture to interpret dreams while attributing their skill to God. So in verses 17 through 24, Pharaoh recounts his dreams, and there are two embellishments, otherwise the text is identical, so I'm not going to reread it, but if you're looking for things to underline or details to note, verse 19, Pharaoh says the cows were scrawny and very ugly, so it's emphasized that I've never seen such ugly cows before. And then verse 21, he says, after they ate, they looked as ugly as before, so eating The fat cows didn't make the skinny cows look any better. All right, that takes us to verses 25 through 32, as Joseph interprets the dreams. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. So in a nutshell, two dreams, one interpretation. Daniel makes that explicit in verse 25. And then in verse 32, he adds that the double dream means that it's firmly decided and will occur soon. It's certain and impending. Now, it's interesting because in chapter 37, remember that Joseph received two dreams, and he took that to mean certain, but certainly not impending. In chapter 40, we had two completely different dreams, so that wouldn't apply very well. But in this case, Joseph is convinced by God that it's not just certain, but certain and impending. The interpretation is seven years of great abundance and then seven years of ravaging famine. And 31 is very colorful. A famine so bad, it would cause people to forget the abundance. There's an application here as well for us, right? We have blessings and curses, and sometimes the curses are so bad we forget the blessings, even though we shouldn't. Now, this is rare in Egypt because of the Nile River, and maybe that's part of the wise men's difficulty in interpreting. Maybe Pharaoh and wise men had the dream right in front of them, but they just couldn't imagine that because it just didn't happen very often. Notice also that three times Joseph gives glory and credit to God, verses 25, 28, and 32. This is not by chance. It's not through other gods. This is the God of Joseph, the God of Israel, who is responsible for these interpretations and who is sovereign over nature and history. All right, this is a good place to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. 
Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 40 and 41 this week. First two segments, we talked about Genesis 40. That's the dream interpretations for the cupbearer and the baker. And then Joseph has forgotten, but he's remembered two years later as Genesis 41 gets going. Pharaoh has a dream that needs interpretation. God provides the interpretation of Joseph. And that's where we finished at verse 32. What will Joseph and Pharaoh do next? Let's read 33 through 36 and find out. Joseph continues to talk and says, And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. So Joseph goes beyond impressive knowledge to now practical wisdom. Knowledge is one thing. Wisdom is another. What to do with the knowledge that you have. And the principles he lays out, pretty basic, pretty important. Seek wise counsel and store up an emergency fund. Or we might say save up food for a rainy day, or in this case, a not so rainy day. Now, Joseph recommends a very high percentage of taxation here, but it's wisdom in that it should not be as painful in times of plenty. It's high enough to cover the shortfall, but also low enough to be feasible politically. So this is one version of practical planning that follows revelation from God's truth. And this is coming from Joseph. There's no hint that this is coming from God. There's no credit given to God here as well. Notice also that he says it should be implemented by one able man. There shouldn't be a committee. There's no time to lose. As an economist who's into public policy, I'm reminded of the common thing that we talk about, which is knowledge and motives, that with good knowledge and good motives, you'll get good government. If knowledge or motives are relaxed, not so much, right? If you don't have good knowledge, then you get good intentions. If you don't have good motives, then you get evil. With Pharaoh, the hope is that he's a benevolent dictator with superior information. The information part is covered. The revelation of the interpretation of the dream allows that he has more knowledge. But what are the motives? Hopefully, it's for the good of the people. Cynically, though, we could look at Pharaoh being able to increase and consolidate his power and their dependence on him. Notice Joseph's style here as well. He defers to Pharaoh, much more tactful than what we saw from him in chapter 37. Takes a little poke at the wise men in verse 33, again, maybe to put himself in the top position or or lobby for that. He's looking for a discerning and wise man, but who better than Joseph? I mean, that seems obvious at this point. And as we said before, Joseph is quick on his feet in a very challenging situation. Verses 37 through 40, let's see what Pharaoh does with this. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Well, wow, is I think the answer here. I mean, Pharaoh's wisdom and his security in being able to seek counsel and then to rely on Joseph is really impressive. Ecclesiastes 4.13, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. Pharaoh doesn't have that problem. He's willing to defer to someone who has great skill. And that's the height of great leadership, putting people in positions who are actually better than you and not feeling threatened by that. Verse 37, there's a general approval of Joseph's plan. We don't see any jealousy here, at least overtly, 
Or maybe they're just worried about going against Pharaoh. Pharaoh's making the decisions. Pharaoh doesn't mind putting people in prison. Maybe God's hand is on their heart, but everything goes smoothly here as Joseph is put into the second position. Again, really reminiscent of Daniel and the wise men, and certainly points us back to what happened with Potiphar's wife, Joseph's brothers, and Joseph's dreams. 38 is an interesting reference, the spirit of God or the spirit of the gods. Again, language that we see also in the book of Daniel. He's, in essence, overwhelmed by God's presence within Joseph. The Life Application Bible says, Those who know you should be able to see God in you through your kind words, merciful acts, and wise advice. And that's certainly the case for Pharaoh with Joseph. But again, the references to God are vague, Elohim. And that's the language that you would use with a pagan, the generic reference to God. By way of contrast, in chapter 39, verses 2 and 5, in talking about God with Joseph, the reference is to Yahweh. Now, the God of Israel and the God of the Bible is different. The God of the universe is different than this generic pagan God. Our God is personal and covenantal rather than the generic powerful God that the pagans would worship. He's the universal God of all, but he's also the particular God of those who follow him and are called by him. He's a God of justice and mercy and grace. And so Yahweh is different, but they don't know Yahweh. And so he speaks to them of the generic God that they do know and refers to him as Elohim. So verse 39, the nominations are in and the conclusion is obvious. Joseph's interpretation and plan are impressive. He's an Israelite, so on one hand, it'd be easy to discriminate against him. But when you bear the cost of the discrimination, as Pharaoh would hear, it's harder to do it. And Pharaoh goes with the best man available. Joseph also doesn't have any kind of power base, so practically and politically, it looks like a good move. And again, we point to Pharaoh's humility, similar to what Nebuchadnezzar will do with Daniel and his friends in Babylon. And then 40 lays out the authority that he has in this new powerful position. Certainly fulfills chapter 37's dreams and prophecy. He's gone from pit to Potiphar's house to prison to palace. And after being faithful in the little things, he's now in a great position thanks to God's providence and also his skills and experience and his character. Verses 41 to 46, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zephathanath Paniah, and gave Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. So a lot of small details here. Verse 41, he's put in charge. Verse 44, he's got the authority. So he's made it to the top, or nearly so. Verse 42, you've got the ring, and the fourth clothing change begins here. You've got a robe, which goes back to his childhood dream. You've got a gold chain. All this is reminiscent of Mordecai in the book of Esther, Daniel, the prodigal son. It's also part of Judah's pledge in chapter 38, that gold chain reference. Verse 43, the chariot ride. And make way, again, reminiscent of Mordecai and Haman in the book of Esther. Verse 46, he's 30 years old. So this is 13 years after he was 17 years old, sold into slavery in chapter 37, verse 2. He's still a very young man. Parallels Christ, prominence in public at age 30, a rapid rise to prominence, 
and shepherding in prison as training for this moment. It also tells us that most of his formative years were spent in Egypt, and that's a theme we're going to come back to a lot in the closing chapters of Genesis. In verse 45, he's given a new name. It most likely means God speaks, he lives, or creator or sustainer of life. So God creates, but Joseph is said to sustain life. Now, Pharaoh here is exercising dominion over Joseph, underlining his still top power. You don't get to name people unless you're above them. And practically, this is a name that'd be easier for him and the people to remember and to pronounce. So there's a cultural piece of this. Verse 45 also has an arranged marriage, not by his father, as would be traditional in a culture and particularly in Judaism, but by Pharaoh. The wife is a gift and an honor. Maybe he's looking for someone religious to match with Joseph, who seems pretty religious, as with his brothers. He ends up with a non-Hebrew wife. The reference to Potipharah is interesting as well. Remember, Potiphar's wife gets him thrown in prison. Potipharah's daughter gets him in tighter with the hierarchy under Pharaoh. Last thing is there's no sign of eros or erotic uh, attraction sort of love that his dad had shown with Rachel. And so it's just interesting that that's not the case in this generation. It may indicate Joseph is more about business, more about administrating and leading than being concerned about things like beauty. If we're to sum this up, we'd say, hey, look, there's these are big changes, but Joseph's used to it. And it's making him more acceptable to other Egyptians. And apparently these are things that are not offensive to Joseph. He's assimilating. But maybe it's no big deal. Again, we're back to the question with Daniel. When do you accept the things from a foreign culture and when do you reject them? Daniel's a great study in that. Joseph walks a similar path, but we're not really told why he makes the decisions or what it does to him. Again, that's a topic that we'll talk about later as Joseph comes back in contact with his brothers and Israel and Egypt have a competition of sorts in the closing part of Genesis. But for now, we just note that these are big changes and Joseph seems to go along with them. Verses 47 through 49. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. So verse 47 has the seven years of plenty as prophesied. Verse 48 says that he collected all the food, and clearly that's hyperbole, but it does indicate that more was collected than was expected by the plan. Verse 48 also mentions storage in the city, which is certainly very reasonable in terms of administration, but it's ominous in practical terms in that we're worried about dependence on the state or the city in this case and the government. And biblically, any reference to city, especially at this point, has got to get us worried. Remember that Cain formed the first city, at the city of Babel, the city of Sodom, and so on. So any reference to city makes us wince a little bit. And as we know, if you know the story going forward, things are not going to go very well uh, for for the future uh, in terms of the city and the state power of Pharaoh and what that's going to look like in the next few hundred years. Verse 49 is an analogy back to grain, and the other two times it's been used, it was used to point to the number of children under the covenant of God with Abraham. 
One small thing here worries the commentators. Remember the marriage of convenience and promotion, but there was no mention of children back in verse 45. And Leon Cass worries here that the seeds of grain are being hoarded, progeny and the fruitfulness of Israel are being ignored. Joseph is on the brink of falling outside the covenant. In other words, if Joseph doesn't have any children, what's the point? And so from here, we then turn from that concern to what we need to know about Joseph's seed. Verses 50 through 52. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So in a nutshell, he names the sons forget and fruitful. Manasseh means to forget his troubles. Ephraim means twice fruitful. Borgman says about forgetting the troubles that Joseph has been carrying a psychological weight around about which we knew nothing but could have suspected. Right, we haven't read that Joseph is really struggling here, but in naming his child, we get a look into his mind, his spirit, and his soul. In terms of Ephraim's name, it's a much more hopeful one that he's fruitful and connecting it back to Genesis 12 that the people of Israel would be blessed so that they can bless others. And that's been fulfilled and will continue to be fulfilled. Joseph recognizes that implicitly in the naming of Ephraim. Forget and fruitful are also two really important traits to, to forget your past, particularly the negative things, and to celebrate new beginnings. And he's able to do that here. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And we've seen that verse work out in spades for Joseph. Can we be fruitful in the land of our affliction? Well, how do you do that? You have to forget to some extent, and you have to remember and focus on the blessings, the fruitfulness that we've been given. And children are often helpful for us in that. They help us focus on the more important things and to feel fruitful. The last cool thing here is that these are Hebrew names. He was just given an Egyptian name by Pharaoh, but he sticks to Hebrew names. So that's a great sign for holiness and his identity in God. We will continue to have concerns about his assimilation. And that includes the troubling reference here to saying he wants to forget his previous household. But giving them Hebrew names is certainly a hopeful sign. All right, verses 53 to 57 to wrap up. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. So 53 and 54, the seven years of famine began. Verse 55, Joseph is explicitly in charge, as we just talked about earlier. And then 57, we have domestic sales of grain. And 57, the foreign sales of grain. Cass says, a global catastrophe and there's only one source of hope. Joseph the Egyptian is in the position of savior of life on earth. While we may applaud Joseph's forethought, we are rightly made uneasy by this man who profits from exercising his godlike power over life and death. We'll have more to say about that later. For now, it foreshadows the meeting that we'll talk about next week between Israel and Egypt, and as it turns out, between Joseph and his family. Dear Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for what it teaches us about difficulty and patience in the midst of affliction and believing in your sovereignty. 
Help us to learn from Joseph how to live in a difficult culture and difficult circumstances. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' name. Hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.